Welcome to Atlanta Business Talk, the podcast for business professionals and entrepreneurs to share their stories, strategies, and business tips. I am your host, Scott Shetler, and in this episode, I talk with VinWiki owner, Ed Bolian. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Atlanta Business Talk. I'm your host, Scott Shetler, and I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. Today, we're going to be with Ed Bolian. I'm going to take a second here and read Ed's bio. Ed has worked in the car industry for the past 15 years. He started an exotic car rental company from his dorm room at Georgia Tech, was the director of sales at a Lamborghini Aston Martin McLaren dealership, and now owns the VinWiki app. His YouTube channel has over 1 million subscribers and gets approximately 150 million views per year. In 2013, Ed and a team set the New York to Los Angeles cannonball run record with a time of 28 hours, 50 minutes. He lives in Alpharetta, Georgia with his wife and five-year-old son, and they are expecting a daughter in March. Ed, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's a uh, that's a heck of a bio, man. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Uh, the one common theme that seems to you know hold your entire professional career together is your passion for cars. Where did that all start? Yeah, I learned early on that cars were an interesting way for people to express themselves in the way same way that you know fitness and exercise strategies can be in your industry. Just that it's a it's obviously something everybody can relate to. Most people, you know, use cars on a regular basis, but it's one of those genres where you can kind of go above and beyond. And I was, I didn't grow up in a car loving family. I did have some car loving friends, you know, at, at impressionable times in my life, you know, teenage years. And really it was when I could start to drive that, that the obsession really started and it really hadn't slowed down since. I, I can't say that I, I love, you know, necessarily wrenching on cars and cleaning cars. I just love driving cars. You know, I can find solutions to all those things and I can turn a wrench if I have to. But at the same time, like to me, it's really the experiences and the relationships that surround the automotive hobby that that make it something worth pursuing to me. So in your bio, you had mentioned that you started an exotic car uh, rental business from your dorm room. Was that your first uh, kind of real professional venture in the uh, automotive industry? Yeah, in the automotive industry, it was. Uh, prior to that, I actually had a business breeding albino iguanas in my parents' basement as a middle and high schooler. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a little different than cars. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was a little bit of a pivot. You know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't want to be Jeremy Clarkson. I wanted to be the crocodile hunter. So nice. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I ended up closer to the former, I suppose. But it's been a uh, it's been a very, very interesting ride. But that was back in 2006, obviously, like the craziest U.S. lending economy that we've ever seen. And that was a time when a 20 year old without any verifiable income could get a loan for a Lamborghini. And so I did just that. I, I, I took all the money I had. It was like twenty thousand dollars saved up from a variety of things and used that as a down payment on a 2004 Gallardo and uh, started renting it out the next week. So it, it, uh, it was a very interesting business, learned a lot. It, 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 the rental industry for anything, whether it's real estate or cars, is inverse in success to the overall success of the economy. So it was actually kind of fortuitous that, you know, I got I really got up and running late 06, early 07. And then as the economy really got weak in 2008, the attraction to renting cars became even more appealing. And so 
I, I had a lot of really like ownership replacement clients that were treating it as a way to avoid depreciation and crazy maintenance and the things that owners were seeing at that point. And it, uh, it became a great business, but um, has a lot of risk. And at the point that the economy really hit a bottom, there were no more loans available for exotic cars for anybody, much less than a 22-year-old kid. And I uh, had recently gotten married at that point and uh, was looking for something else. I couldn't expand the fleet and the quality of the customer base kind of eroded as the depreciation stopped. So, you know, just like today, there are so many exotic cars you can own without any fear of depreciation that back then anybody who had decent enough credit just bought them. And I wasn't really able to compete with that from a financial perspective, whereas, you know, 12 to 18 months prior, it was a great value proposition. So I was looking to transition out and it had been kind of courted by the local Ferrari and Lamborghini dealerships at the time and ended up going to work for Lamborghini Atlanta. And during that time, we got the Aston Martin and McLaren franchises. That's fascinating, man. So before you had uh, before you had finished in, in your rental business, how big had you built your fleet up to? Because you, you said you started with a, a Gallardo, right? And then what would you build on to from there? Got a few Ferraris, a couple Mercedes and things like that. And I really just kept it about four to five cars at a time. You know, as sexy as it is to look at a warehouse full of cars, warehouses full of cars are not making you any money. And that was honestly the saturation of the Atlanta market. Like it was very rare for me to have more than three or four cars out at a time. And so, you know, there wasn't a need to have seven, eight, nine, ten cars. And as cool as it would have been to expand to <clears throat> Bentleys, Maseratis, Corvettes, anything else, there was more competition in the down market cars. And everybody really, if they think of an exotic rental car, they want a Ferrari or a Lamborghini anyway. Sure. Yeah. So then that that takes you over to uh, motor cars of, uh, I guess it was motor cars of Georgia at the time. I think they're motor cars of Atlanta now. Um, when when I, I think when I met you, you were the, uh, were you the sales director? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean- it's a glorified car salesman. I mean, it's a small okay. dealership, so you know we all have to wear several hats. But uh, I was essentially the brand manager and in charge of sales for uh, each of the brands as we got them in Lamborghini the entire time. So for the first little while, I was in charge of Aston, and for the first little while, I was in charge of McLaren. But officially, the title was always over Lamborghini because they uh, they they require you to have dedicated personnel for each franchise. So we're seeing some overlap there then, you know, you, you go from an exotic car uh, rental business that you started. Now you're in the exotic car sales business. And I know that's taken you uh, into your, your current business now, which you created, you know, with VinWiki and stuff. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but what, uh, where did the seed, I guess, for VinWiki begin? I mean, was this something that you had been thinking about for a while? Was it something that evolved through your involvement in the uh, exotic sales uh, business? I mean, where did that all start to begin for you? Well, it was really a culmination of a lot of the strategies that I used in personal car ownership and in-car sales. And really, it surrounded curating the history of a car. Certainly, there are history reporting options, Carfax, AutoCheck, Google, things like that to find out some information about a car's past, but there weren't a lot of things that a, an owner or a stakeholder could use to add value. And I learned in selling cars and in you know it, enjoying the ownership process that there were things that I could do to kind of augment that experience. And, and one was very simply to track VINs as you owned cars. So I kept a list of all the VINs of all the cars 
that I had owned on my personal website so that future owners, when they bought one of the cars from the rental company or cars that I'd had for other purposes, they would Google their VINs and find me. And so like I found that a Land Rover Discovery that I had had been exported through an auction in Miami to Puerto Rico and the owner contacted me asking if I could tell him how to make it stop leaking oil. I had to tell him it'll stop when it's empty. The first Gallardo that I had for the rental car company went to Texas, accumulated another 10,000 miles or so, and then was exported to Hong Kong. And, you know, all the cars, I got to kind of see a wider angle than honestly ownership tends to allow. And so tracking cars by then became an interest to me. And, you know, I love the Lamborghini product. And that's one of the reasons, obviously, I went to work at the store. I knew that they were a challenging car to sell, especially in 2009 and 10 when I started. And in fact, in 2009, I started in October and that year they sold five new Lamborghinis. And so by the time I left in wow. 2015, we were doing, you know, 65, 70 new cars a year for that brand along wow. with other, you know, 50, 60 new cars from the other brands. So it was really a transformation of what they were able to do. And I'm not taking credit for that. There were some great successes in the U.S. economy and in the new products, but we became better at representing cars because we took more control of what the history of a car really was through the history that we knew about, the service we could document, and all the ways that we could offer some insight into, into why the car was truly valuable. Because Carfax kind of works like an SAT score. If it's bad, it probably means something. If it's good, it means nothing at all. And it's, you know, it fails very much in the extremes for very valuable cars and very cheap cars. The normal Carfax data set doesn't really offer anything actionable because on a really high end car, you're going to be talking about provenance and rarity and specification options, things like that, that, that Carfax absolutely doesn't have. And sure. on the really low end, you're just talking about how much a car has been maintained. And so I kept having discussions with other entrepreneurially minded friends about, you know, what product, what service, what, you know, opportunity could we create that would start to kind of evangelize this concept and democratize the, the availability of automotive data and crowdsourcing just became the way to do it. And so VinWiki is a crowdsourced vehicle history reporting platform that allows anyone to post to any car by its VIN or by its license plate. And it allows you to track where your cars have ended up, tell people what you do in terms of DIY service, modifications, things like that, and then hand something off to a new owner that they can continue to work with. So it's different than a glove box full of receipts that no one who buys the car in the future has nearly the time or energy invested in it as you do for having done all that. So in all likelihood, they just get lost. And so yeah. this is just you know kind of the way we tried to solve that problem. That's excellent. So you're uh, so at the time you're working at at motor cars while you're uh, kind of building this idea and you're getting the feedback and things like that for it. When did when did the interest in the Cannonball run, Rick? I, I guess let's back up. Maybe maybe tell the listeners, you know, give them a little bit of background on the Cannonball Run. It's it's more than just a movie from the '80s, you know. Uh, yeah. Kind of tell us what it is and where the uh, interest in going after that record came from. Because I, I think uh, when I had talked to you a while back about it, you said you had been planning it for what, around like 10 years or something like that? Yes, yeah. So it was, it was a real race that happened in the 1970s. It happened five times from 71 to 79. And there were a couple continuation events into the 80s. But 
when I heard about it as a teenager, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I actually did a project interviewing Brock Yates from Car and Driver, who was the founder of the event, along with Steve Smith. And, you know, wanted to learn more about the career of automotive journalism and things like that that interested me at the time. But very much just wanted to kind of call the shot and say, look, one day I want to explore what this might look like in a modern context and to see if it's possible to beat the existing record, which was 32 hours and 51 minutes from 1979, according to Yates. But it was technically advanced in 1983 to 32 hours, seven minutes. And so I you know, told him one day I wanted to do it. And he was cordial enough. He's like, good luck, kid. But that kind of set me off on the journey of trying to understand who else cared about this sort of thing and what could be done to, to advance it, knowing that there were twice as many people in the United States and twice as many police officers employed to stop us from being able to do it. That's, that's amazing. So you're, you're thinking about doing this. When did you actually decide, like when, when did you make the decision to pull the trigger and say, okay, we're going to start putting together the resources. I've got the idea for the car. I've got the idea for the, the modifications that we're going to make. You know, when, when did it, when did it all kind of come to fruition? And then from that point, when did you actually go ahead and, and go up to New York and say, we're doing this? So that conversation with Yates would have been in early 2004. I was an 18-year-old high school senior, and I really got serious about it in 2008. But I then, you know, everything else kind of got in the way. Somebody actually crashed into that car that I bought. I bought an 03 S55 AMG that I was going to use for it. So that car got totaled. I ended up buying another one. But then when I went to work at the dealership starting in 2009, I just didn't have the time to take off. The car business is a, a, is a zero quality of life kind of endeavor. And so trying to take a vacation or anything like that, even a weekend off, can be very, very difficult and ruin the finances of an entire month. So it kind of set on the back burner. And then actually I ended up buying a used terrible condition Lamborghini from a local prostitute and rebuilding it. And that uh, became my daily driver for a little while. And at that point, I sold the Mercedes I'd planned to use. So in 2012, a few years into the time of the dealership, I decided it was kind of now or never. Quite honestly, my wife decided that. She uh, was ready to have a kid, and it seemed like something worthwhile to dispense with before proceeding along that route. And so she uh, she was ready for me to do it, and, and we did. So I, uh, I actually ended up doing it in October of 2013, and that was probably about a year into like buying the car, buying all the countermeasures, installing everything, you know, because we had three radar detectors, two laser jammers, four GPS systems, a third-party tracking device, an ambulance, traffic light changer, police scanner, CB radio, everything you could ever imagine to mount an iPad, iPhone, apps, things, all that. So it was uh, mission control in there, and um, it turned out it worked. <laughs> That's amazing, man. And after uh, after it was all said and done, I mean, it led to quite a little bit of publicity for you. I remember, you know, you got on some of the some of the TV talk shows and it eventually led into uh, a book. So why don't you go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about that and and tell people a little bit about the book and where they can find it? Sure, sure. So it would. Yeah, it blew up a lot more than I was expecting to. I guess it was kind of a, a you know, slow news week. I, uh, we released it around Halloween. So we did it like the 19th and 20th. And then about a week later, released everything, and it uh, it really blew up way more than I expected. Yeah, it was the most read story on CNN internationally for a day, and uh, got a, got an awful lot of attention. It, you know, it's not really something you can profit from, uh, but it was definitely one of those defining life experiences. And and for me, the privilege of finding Cannonball 
was the privilege of finding a goal, uh, an idea, something that can possess you to push yourself beyond what you thought you were capable of and to achieve something that the world can kind of understand you by. You know, I, I'm a Christian. I always want to pursue, you know, ways to glorify God. But at the same time, you know, we do live in this world and we have to do things to to work, to define ourselves, to earn a living, and, and sometimes even just to get attention. And uh, what I learned was that this was the kind of goal that could carry me through a very difficult point in my life. I mean, it was, you know, in your 20s, just trying to figure out what on earth you're supposed to do with yourself. And so this kind of ever burning goal, desire, idea in the back of my head really helped me through that. And, you know, it was one of the most cathartic things that I could have ever finished, like reaching the finish line and understand that we had done it and advanced the record, you know, beyond what anyone thought was possible. This 30-hour wall had had always kind of consumed people with like it, no one could ever drive that long, that fast, or, or that well. And so to have been able to do that was just, it was humbling, it was amazing, and and it was the start of a lot of different things. And so that's really what my book is about, not so much the excitement of a bunch of people driving really fast. Quite honestly, it was just a couple of us in a car and with a navigator, and it you know, was pretty undramatic. You know, you just go fast, don't slow down, don't get caught. And <laughs> so it's it's not exactly the Dukes of Hazard, but um, it, the book is about, there is a cannonball idea for everyone. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail or building a, you know, wooden boat in your garage that, you know, that you know every inch of or climbing a mountain, anything like that. Like there is a goal that appeals to something very deep and very significant to you. And if we can find that, it kind of puts the rest of the periphery of life kind of in its place to at least either compliment or help you move closer and closer to that goal. And, and that's what it was for me. And so I opened the book up with a, a dedication to my son saying, look, my, my hope is that you find your cannonball. This isn't the goal for everyone. I didn't always know it was even an appropriate goal for me. But at the same time, I do know that there are things out there for any interest, any type of person that, that can motivate you to make yourself more like who you've always wished you could be. And that's what it was. You know, that, that's I, I love that that comment about, you know, finding your cannonball. I, I've got a little side story. I've got a I've got a friend who kind of made a name for herself in the world of uh, professional sports entertainment. She was probably and, and I never really followed professional wrestling, but she was probably one of the most notable, at least probably the female that really brought athleticism into the professional wrestling ring. And okay. I remember back, she was inducted into the uh, WWE Hall of Fame, I think in 2014. I may have the year wrong, but I remember because she's a big, she's really into punk rock. That's a huge love of hers. And I remember listening to her uh, her speech, you know, about how her love for punk rock, her love being on the fringe, took her down this road that led to this amazing career in professional wrestling, which you know, you, you would if she was 15, you know, she would have never, if somebody would have said she was going to be a pro wrestler, she'd be like, yeah, right. Come on. You know? And I remember she concluded her speech by saying, find your punk rock. And I thought that was really cool because it's the same thing that you're saying there, find your cannonball, you know, find that goal that, you know, really challenges you to be who you are or who you're meant to be or to, to, like you said, it kind of makes your life fall into place. So I, I really love that comment that that's excellent. So Moving on here, let's let's move into uh, so you're you're wrapping up your uh, 
your time at motor cars uh, and through that time, I mean, I know you were heavily involved in the, in the local car scene around here. You know, you're at all the car shows, you're attending a lot of events, you know, you've done some great networking. Everybody knows you. And uh, at this point in time, you decide you're going to leave motor cars and, and you're going to go into VinWiki full time. Now I know there's a couple different avenues with VinWiki. You've got the app and then you've got the YouTube channel, which has, has become an amazing success for you. Um, but, but it all started with the app. Is that correct? It did, yeah, and it didn't start immediately after having left the the dealership. It, it was obviously based on a lot of things from the dealership, but I left not really knowing what was going to be next. I mean, a lot of times as an entrepreneur or somebody who wants to be, it's very, very hard to make the right decisions when you have the noise of traditional daily employment in the way. And it was a risky move, but it was a quality of life move. I just... I was in a position where I was working 70, 80 hours a week and had a phone that could never be turned off. And it was just not what I wanted long term. It had been a great opportunity. It was a lot of fun. And I you know, learned so, so much. But I knew that I wasn't going to be a lifer in the exotic car dealership world. And so I needed to do something else. And I didn't know what that was going to be. And so one day I just walked into Brandon, who was our general manager's office at the time. And I said, hey, I think it's time to call it. And, you know, it kind of caught them all off guard. But I said, look, you know, I'm not going to be able to identify the best opportunity while I'm doing all of this. And so it's not fair to y'all. It's not fair to anybody for me to, you know, do it halfway. And so I, I just left and we ended up um, I, I had developed the habit at that point of probably, you know, quarterly or so getting together. 10 to 20 friends that had different entrepreneurial mindsets, different skill sets, different educational backgrounds, and just brainstorming ideas, getting into a room and just saying, look, let's just talk about ideas that are on your mind, what we might be able to pursue, where we might all be able to add value, and then see if anything comes of it. And so I started doing that with a little bit more earnest, obviously, after I left the store. And uh, this, is, this was one of the ideas that came out of it. And so I had a bunch of friends that had different technological skill sets. They were able to build an app and they just wanted the right idea. And they wanted to believe that there was enough marketing effort, capability, capacity, whatever you want to say, behind you know, whoever was on the founding team that we could actually get it out there. And so that's what we did. We built it for the first half of 2016 and launched it in June of 2016. And you know, got some early traction. It went well. People started to understand the concept. I mean, it's it's always kind of an MVP, minimally viable product that you've let out into the world. And you think you're just going to tap a domino and there's going to be a tidal wave in the Pacific Ocean. But that's really not how that sort of thing works. Like you get a few people that get it, a bunch of people that have no clue. And they all, they're very vocal about the fact that they don't have an idea how to use this thing. But, uh, but it started to grow. And after about a year, we had about 5,000 users. So you've it's, got... So you got 5,000 users for, for the app. And then where did the idea for the YouTube channel come along? I mean, was that, was that something that you were going to do as a way to kind of market uh, the app? Or what, what was the whole, uh, what was the basis behind the channel? So very differently than I encountered in 2006 when I started a uh, small business when social media was not a thing. I mean, I think I was like user 500,000 on Facebook in 2005. So nobody was using it for any type of business structure. Twitter wasn't even a, a thing. So 2016, 17, it's an entirely different landscape. And as a small business, capturing social media was obviously critical. And I had learned by letting other YouTuber friends borrow my cars, do reviews and mention VinWiki, like that we would get a nice user bump. And I mean, back in those days, if we got like, 
you know, 200 new users in a day, it was huge. And so if, as we saw that happening, uh, you know, the goal was always like, all right, let's, let's try to get more into YouTube, Instagram, influencer, whatever stuff. But, um, you know, we got, we got a year into this thing and it's got 5,000 users, which is cool, but not becoming anything anybody cares about anytime soon. And I'm like, all right, well, we got to just shelve this thing for the next five years and see if it ever grows, or we need to double down and do more in social media. So we had the idea for a YouTube channel that just kind of captured and immortalized car stories and just decided to uh, sit down in my warehouse, get some pizza, get some beer and, and tell our best ones. And so we shot the first 25 in a day and released it uh, right at the end of June 2017 and started releasing five a week, one every weekday. And uh, I don't think we've missed a day since. That's amazing, man, because as of what was it, December of 2019, I believe, is when you surpassed the million subscriber mark. Yeah, yeah, we did right at the end of last year. So now we're uh, almost the end of January. We got about a, a million thirty thousand, and it grows by about a thousand a day, kind of has the whole time. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. I, I never would have expected that we would develop our own audience. I mean, you know, the, the first hurdle to developing a social media strategy is to develop a content strategy. And so I felt like we had a pretty solid content strategy, but that by no means ensures growth. I mean, there's tons of really high quality posts on every social media platform that never get any traction just due to the ways that the algorithms and the following systems work. And so my original thought had been never that we would ever make a dollar on YouTube, but perhaps we could just give all of this nicely produced car story content to another big YouTuber that might just want another show, like a second episodic thing to happen on their channel. So at the time, you know, I'm really good friends with Doug Demuro and Freddie Tavares Hernandez and Tyler Hoover and uh, Rob Dom, uh, Rob Freddie, David Patterson, a lot of the more prolific and well-established YouTubers at that point. And all of them said no. And I was like, I, I didn't understand it. But you kind of, as, as you do continue to release content on YouTube, you kind of learn that it's all based around this idea of kind of releasing the same type of thing every day. Uh, YouTube channels should be called YouTube shows because if you deviate from it too terribly, it can really uh, disrupt the, the success of the subsequent videos. But yeah, we just started doing it and, uh, and it started to grow. So if, uh, you know, when nobody said yes to let me put it on their stuff, we just said, well, I guess we'll put it on ours and uh, started to grow pretty quick. Well, and that ended up being kind of a blessing in disguise, I guess, because had you uh, given it off, you know, you, you wouldn't be where you are today with it, I'd imagine. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was amazing timing. It was right at a point where a lot of YouTube channels started to have some pretty explosive growth. We started to see the ad rates start to climb. And so, you know, we're in a very strange position now because the YouTube channel has translated, obviously, to... A, a big audience there, but it's also translated to about 280,000 new users in our app. And so it, you know, is very much taxes the technological limits of that app right now, because, you know, in that first year, obviously most of our technical development team went off and got other jobs and things like that. And we're just looking for other things to do. And so they kind of built to the end of their technological ability and to the end of their time availability. 
And so, you know, we're, we're now at this interesting crossroads where it is not just the cart driving the horse, but the cart runs so far ahead of the horse in the marketing channel that uh, we've now got to kind of go back to the drawing board of how to really dial in, adjust, and, and make the app a lot more sticky. So, so that's kind of where we are on a daily basis today is just trying to figure out what makes sense, what's possible, and, and exactly how to do that. So what's the future for uh, VinWiki look like? You got any uh, any short-term goals or anything right now that you're pursuing? Or are you just going to try to continue to to grow your uh, uh, subscription base? What, what are you working on right now? So we have you know had a few acquisition offers that never quite made sense. We've had a few you know investment proposals and things like that. But again, nothing that really made sense based on how to value the company and things like that. And and that's really the the hard thing for you know, I've always considered myself a zero to X entrepreneur rather than an X to Y entrepreneur. I enjoy making something exist that didn't exist there before. The scaling, the growth, the long-term grinded out stuff is never something that I've had any mental image of myself doing. And so <clears throat> I honestly have no idea what to do right now. And I'm enjoying that because it keeps it very open-ended. I mean, we're making good progress on all fronts, so it's not a, there's no stagnancy or apathy that develops from kind of that resignation to be along for the ride. But at the same time, you know, it, it means that what the future holds seems to change pretty often. I mean, certainly we're going to continue with the YouTube growth strategy and continue to make make new content daily. We're going to continue to find ways to tweak and improve the app and to make sure that uh, the community of users that get and love the app. Are, are satisfied, have, have access to all of us and can continue to grow through that. It's already the largest public facing automotive data platform that's uh, available on earth. And so we love what it is becoming. Uh, and you know, we're just talking to different people about different growth strategies. And so I really don't know, but uh, <laughs> it's been a, been a wild ride so far. Well, that's amazing, man. It's been a wild ride. And at, at least you're, you know, in a position right now where you're enjoying it and you still have the potential for some different things to happen. You know, you're not locked into any one thing, but you enjoy what you're doing. You're sharing some great content, some amazing stories. And uh, it just seems like you're hitting a good stride right now. So you might as well, you know, take the time to to really, really enjoy it and love what you're doing before uh, the next big thing happens, I guess. That's right. So it's uh yeah, it's, it's a tough thing as an entrepreneur to kind of find yourself in that position because we constantly want to improve. We want to tweak it. We want to make it that 5%, 10%, 100% better. But uh, at the moment, that's not really, it's, it's maybe not available to me. And so yeah. I, I'm having to learn to just, you know, smell the roses for a few minutes and, uh, and just, you know, let the world change around you a little more than you try to change it sometimes. Well, that's great, man. Well, hey, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Ed. Let's go ahead and uh, bring this one in for a landing. So why don't you, if people are interested in learning more about you or if people want to pick up your book or if they want to uh, subscribe to your YouTube channel, you know, whatever, why don't you go ahead and share your uh, your social media, any websites and, and direct them that way. And I'll also include links to all that in the show notes as well. I really appreciate that. And again, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. You can find me anywhere at, at Ed Bolian, E-D-B-O-L-I-A-N, or at VinWiki on Twitter, VinWiki underscore official on Instagram, and obviously VinWiki.com. The VinWiki app is free in the Android or iOS app store, and uh, you can certainly check that out there. Uh, we're making you new YouTube videos every day, so uh, come by and tell your best car story sometime, but uh, we definitely appreciate all the support. 
All right, Ed. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. And for Atlanta Business Talk, I'm Scott Shetler. Looking forward to seeing you on the next one.